So welcome back to the Cracks in Postmodernity. Today we have Jack, the perfume nationalist, joining us. So thanks for coming, Jack. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So for those who don't already know about perfume nationalists, tell us a little bit of background. Like, How did you get started? What's the inspiration behind it and all of that? Um, so we started, I started Perfume Nationalist with my brother in February 2019. So we've been doing it uh, three years now. Um, basically, I was working dead end service jobs, hospitality jobs, and uh, was a kind of failed academic, made it uh, halfway through a master's program in English and then got discouraged. Um, and I had also started a job as a copy editor of women's ebook erotica okay. at that time, which um, my first full-time job, which took up all of my time. So for a long time, there was uh, no creative outlet. Um, I loved school. I loved uh, being assigned books to formulate ideas and essays about and meet together to talk about them. Um, and I also had a parallel interest in perfume going back to probably 2007, 2008, mm -hmm. um, and uh, kind of amassed all of this knowledge about the history of perfume, started buying and wearing uh, women's perfumes from the 80s and stuff indiscriminately. Um, I mainly just wanted some kind of outlet and my brother suggested we should just try recording a podcast and uh we kept doing it and here we are uh but the main gist of it is uh pairing uh, relevant perfumes with different media throughout history whether that's uh it's predominantly movies uh, but also literature tv shows soap opera uh, sometimes video games and albums um and yeah that's it yeah so i also had a perfume phase when i was like in middle school i don't really know why i was so fascinated by it but i would always go to the department stores and i would ask for the little samples and i would like try to go over and over again to the point that they recognized me and would stop giving me them but i have like a what samples did you like I just took whatever I could get. I would just ask them for samples. And then I had like a big box. Of all of that. Right. I remember being in like elementary school and yeah. making one of those little tube samples last for like months, like yeah. some cologne from uh, Eddie Bauer or like Abercrombie, a mall yeah. store, just put a tiny delicate dab. Uh, now I spray lavishly and can't possibly use up everything that I have during my life. Yeah. So yeah, I'm too cheap to buy actual bottles. I just collect the samples and like use them sparingly. Also, because I get headaches very easily. Like I remember <laughs> once I got the Justin Bieber one and it like gave me diarrhea. It was really bad. Oh, I imagine that's really bad. I mean, yeah, the the really cheap uh, bottom of the shelf kind of mop water stuff uh, is more likely to do that. Sometimes it just smells like hot plastic. Yes. Uh, but as Luca Turin said, the only appeal of cheap perfumes is that they smell good. So there's something like we cover things um, in the entire range of uh, cost and availability from like $10 drugstore perfumes to, you know, $400 and up niche stuff. 
Have you ever gone to like one of those bootleg vendors who mix them with water, but market them as like, you know, the real designer ones? Um, yeah, there's a certain charm to that. I recall going in um, this like combination, like head shop, uh, Bob Marley memorabilia and knockoff perfume store in New Orleans. Yeah. Uh, downtown and the walls are just covered in bottles with like uh, handwritten labels that say yep. different designing <laughs> perfumes and I would imagine they all smell uh, pretty bad um, but uh, yeah the you know fakes can be kind of archaeologically interesting and some mm -hmm. of them are um, really good uh, and kind of preserve the spirit of uh an old perfume better than the real thing does through decades of reformulation like um there's one called cafe that's a dupe of opium that costs like uh eight dollars that's remained unchanged since 1978 and it's a really good dupe of opium but you know generally uh you gotta get the real thing for yeah. the real experience and perfume is an affordable luxury it was always intended as an affordable luxury like mm -hmm. uh designer perfumes uh were explicitly intended as something that the common man could afford when they could not afford a you know ten thousand dollar custom couture garment yeah. um just some attainable representation of these uh, luxury brands yeah no i whenever i go down like in chinatown in manhattan they have all those vendors with the cheap ones and like once i was with a friend who was not from new york and she saw they had like some armani perfume for like 20 dollars, and she's like oh my god i have to get some of these for my mom and i was like no it's watered down like that's why it's so cheap but they swear that it's the real thing of course but yeah you can go wrong easily Very with that um but there's also um like everything on amazon and like fragrance net and stuff like that is real but there are all these unhinged reviews from like uh boomers who have lost their sense of smell and don't you know believe in online shopping or trust it they're like i was sent a fake as though there's this factory making like uh lavish uh totally detailed and correct replicas of like Clinique aromatics elixir bottles and selling them for $30 on Amazon like no that's not true um but yeah if you if it's some uh desirable like uh, current designer thing that's like mentioned in rap songs um mm -hmm. then that what you see on eBay for a mysteriously low price will be fake yeah so then what are your top perfumes which ones do you like the most if you can um, yeah, my, my top perfumes, the most influential ones on me, uh, the original uh, Comme des Garçons Eau de Parfum from 1994, uh, which smells like a deconstructed spice cabinet um, and came packaged in uh, the, like a shrink-wrapped, uh, vacuum-sealed kind of plastic and looked like just garbage. It's amazing. That's one of my favorites. Clinique Aromatics Elixir, which was an early um, experiment in kind of rich hippie aromatherapy uh, from 1971 or 72. Was that your uh, first by, That one? Yeah, Problematics Elixir <laughs> was the first episode. Yeah. And it, it was uh, promoted kind of as a drug or a psychedelic trip uh, and in this holistic 
manner, uh, not like the other perfumes. And it was designed for Estee Lauder's uh, fragrance-free hypoallergenic uh, Swedish spin-off brand Clinique. Um, and it's this strong, um, like forest floor, uh, green Shepra, heavy patchouli, uh, totally 70s. Uh, yeah, Angel, um, Estee Lauder Youth Do, mm -hmm. uh, which is from 53 which uh, is a massive oriental spice fragrance um, that was marketed to women to buy for themselves for the first time as a bath oil. Um, and it smells like ancient Egypt and like uh, the best kind of mummy sarcophagus you could ever imagine. Uh, very like Joan Crawford, old Hollywood um 50s kind of deal still exactly the same as it always was um and then uh claude montana's parfum de peau which is one from a rose sheep uh, from the 80s that comes in this big uh striking helix uh like dna helix bottle and montana um was along with terry mugler one of the designers that brought in shoulder pads and he had these like fascistic looking uh, kind of Nazi looking uh, runway shows, all heavy leather, very like SS uniform, cool aesthetics, um, but a very uh, garbagey, strange um, fragrance genre. One of my favorites. Mm. The only ones that I wear once in a while. So Victor and Rolf's Spice Bomb. Do you know that one? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that one. What do you think of it? Um, <clears throat> it's okay. Uh, what I prefer okay that genre of like uh cinnamon spice sort of masculines i mm -hmm. think the best one of those that ever was is chanel egoist the original okay. egoist not platinum egoist um so anytime i smell something that's like a descendant of egoist i'm like you should get egoist instead but yeah that one it was nice it's it's very popular uh with men and women alike yeah because of the flower bomb the women's one I mean, similar. The the men's is like, I don't know how to describe it. I don't know the technical terms, but like people always think it's uh, when they smell it that it's like apple cider. That's what they usually say. Yeah, it does have a cozy Christmassy apple cider yeah. vibe. I like anything with that kind of a ceremonial uh, holiday Christmas vibe. The original Comme de Garçon is much like that. I like the spice cabinet quality that people often call a Yankee candle. Yeah. <laughs> The smell of Christmas. Yeah. So that one and then the YSL Loam. Mm -hmm. That one's like cheapier kind of smelling, much lighter kind of. It's not as pungent, I guess. Yeah. The uh, fall of the house of YSL is really a tragedy. Uh, L'Oreal bought their beauty division in, oh, really? in 2009. And they had this decades long history of producing the most amazingly production designed uh striking fragrances ever uh, like opium kuros mm -hmm. reeve gauche uh paris and then for the last uh 10 12 years they've kind of discontinued all the old ones and uh, uh are putting like these ads out with like lenny kravitz for these you know, kind <laughs> yeah. of pretty uh crowd-pleasing mainstream fragrances nothing nothing like an opium or a koros yeah yeah my grandmother used to use the opium one it's a very distinct smell 
Yeah, that one. And then the I have Blue de Chanel, which is like a little too strong for me. Only like a couple times a year will I wear it. It's like a very masculine fragrance. Yeah, that one's huge. I always direct people to that one if they want um, like one of the popular mainstream kind of blue current men's department store fragrances. It's yeah. much better than uh, uh, Dior's uh, Sauvage and like all these other kind of imitations of it. Yeah. So I'm wondering, like, how do you pair these fragrances with whatever kind of pop culture medium when you're planning your episodes? Um, in lots of different ways. Sometimes they're very obliquely related and uh, it works less well than other times. But, you know, I consider the time period uh, that it represents because fragrances and uh, the sense of smell is uh, a psychedelic time warp. Mm -hmm. And that's what interested me initially when I started smelling like Giorgio and all these 80s fragrances. I was like, oh, I can be transported instantly to another era that has nothing to do with right now. Suddenly I'm in like Mae West's uh, drawing room. Um, and uh, I consider the time period, I consider the mood and genre of the fragrance, whether this is like, uh, uh, lush, heavy-lidded, oriental-type druggy deal like opium, or if it's a sharp green shebra. Um, I consider the advertising imagery and the uh, the uh, image that they created for the perfume. Mm -hmm. um, uh, sometimes it's just the fact that the perfume is like featured in the movie prominently or whatever, but mainly... I would say more often than not, it's about uh, the time period and just the general vibe. Yeah. No, I, I always find that, um, I don't know, the way that you're able to connect them, it's interesting. Because, like, I always was just, you know, had a kind of fleeting interest in perfume. But to see how you can, like, read into it, um, all the fragrance notes, but also the kind of cultural implication. Um but what I think what first drew me, I think I found you through the Anna and Dasha episodes, which were like, what, a, was it two years ago at, at this point? It was two years ago, I think. Yeah. It, or it was summer, summer and fall 2020. Okay. Yeah. So almost two years. But then I think like what, um, what also drew me is, you know, the many pal, your references. Um, so I'm just curious, like, how did you first find Palia? When did it all begin for you? I first found Palia through the audio commentary she did on the Basic Instinct uh, special edition DVD that was put out in, I think, 2002 or 2003. And I listened to that and I was like, who is this woman? She's fascinating. Yeah. Um, and when I was going to Austin Community College, I was 18 or 19, I checked Sexual Persona out of the library um, and read a few pages and immediately went and uh, bought all the other books. And at that time, they were everywhere in the social sciences section of every half price. There was a full set of Palia. I never see this anymore, which is a good sign because I think people keep them now. Yeah. Um, but I read, uh, before reading the entirety of Sexual Persona, I read Vamps and Tramps and Sex Art in American Culture, the essays collections. And uh, for the first time, I felt uh, represented like my um, swampy viewpoint that had been uh, brewing in my head uh, where I had been 
very openly gay in high school from a very young age. So I was uh, sort of automatically sequestered in with the millennial, uh, precocious millennial liberals who at that time liked stuff like The Daily Show. Um, And I sensed that there was something that did not resonate with me about uh, their viewpoint. I felt like I really don't belong with whatever this kind of sanctimonious thing is, but I'd never seen it um, fully extrapolated until I read Palia and she provides uh, uh, an intricately mapped out, uh, exceedingly funny and shocking view of the world that end of art that completely resonated with me. And my fervor for Palia was uh, kind of cringe. Uh, in the early days, I I even like bought complete sets of Palia for like everyone in the family one Christmas, um, such was my passion. Um, but yeah, she just became the, the dominant theorist of my life. And I, as I went through college and read a bunch of, of other um, more encouraged and respected uh, theorists, they all seemed really uh, dry and um, mediocre and just mm-hmm. frankly not as good. So it's good that I read Palia prior to um, higher level college courses because that really like gave me the guidepost to deal with academia. Yeah, I, I always wish I found her before college because what I was reading Look, like I went to a, a Jesuit college um, and I majored in theology and then ended up doing a master's after in theology. But they had us reading Judith Butler and Foucault. And I mean, that was basically it, like all the post-structuralists. And I didn't really have a way to make sense of what they were presenting, um, first of all, because it's incomprehensible and boring. But And it's uh, designed to be incomprehensible yeah. because you have to pay and feed into the the ladder of academia and get deeper and deeper into the system like a religion like Scientology in order for these these uh, supposedly so complex ideas to be revealed to you. You then have the authority, you know, the the divine right, like you're the, the Pope or a priest or something reading the Bible in Latin, you're allowed to read these things. Yeah. No, so then I don't think I found her until probably right after I finished undergrad. I was roaming around some like subversive quote-unquote bookstore in the west village in new york and they had her amongst all the feminist books and when i saw it i was like oh like one of these kind of like dumb basic feminists but then i looked her up and i was like uh sounds a little bit different she's kind of old i don't really know but it wasn't until i found there was some youtube video where she talked about transgenderism um and you that know, was after she declared herself transgender when the transgender stuff yeah. started. Yeah. So she could criticize it. Yes. A true transgender. So when I saw that, I was like, oh, wait, maybe she's not like all these other feminists. And then I found a copy of Sexual Persona lying around in, um, at a bookstore. I decided to pick it up and I was like totally enthralled. But I think like for me, what really drew me is that so like, you know, I decided to major in theology because I converted to Catholicism in undergrad. And the the school where I did my master's was a little bit more, I guess, had more integrity in terms of like the Catholic background. And I was reading, you know, a lot of the recent theology on you know, sexual morality, especially John Paul II. 
which to me like was really coherent it made sense um but my big question is like okay but what does this have to say to a culture that's kind of going in such the opposite direction i didn't really see any way to bridge what i was reading and what i ultimately agreed with with what's happening in the culture and reading her like look she's a lapsed italian catholic she identifies as a pagan animist atheist whatever but what I recognize is this um, this understanding of the fact that human sexuality is situated in this tension between um, these dark forces um, and these ideals. So ultimately, the, the Dionysian and the Apollonian, which for me, it's like, sure, in Catholicism, there are certain ideals of, you know, what constitutes sanctity, holiness. But then there's this pull towards you know that kind of dark side which comes from original sin and even though she thinks yes like okay we should transgress the boundaries of nature and that you know blah 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 the fact that she recognizes there is this darkness that there is a tension like this resonated very much with me in a way that i don't know like i know some catholics who do read her but like some who are kind of scandalized but i think there's like she can't shake off that pagan catholic sensibility that sense of the tension between sin and these higher ideals um and again like you said she does it in a way that's entertaining that's funny but extremely intelligent and sharp you know right and um as you said she recognizes the value of all sides like everything like sexuality is this push-pull apparatus with consequences and the fact that she sees all of this is what disturbs people so much because the simple fact of it is that the unbridled libertine sexuality has consequences and especially at the time in 1990 when sexual persona came out um all of the dialogue around aids was this uh preview of the kind of liberalism we see liberal activism we see today with this just kind of utopian evasion of responsibility uh where um clearly the total sexual liberation of gay men uh unprecedented to that point uh and straight people too with divorce and and just everything after the 60s yeah. had resulted in uh this deadly disease sweeping the nation and th that's a fact of how it's transmitted but yeah. but the gay activists the way that they chose to waste everyone's resources and time was to you know um depict things like ryan white and like saintly straight people are just as likely to uh end up with aids and that's how you become sympathetic uh mm -hmm. to this thing and that resulted in just bad information um like people then do not know how to actually avoid getting HIV because of this uh, utopian uh, diversity masking of the realities of it and who gets it. But um, yeah, she depicts all, all sides. Uh, she is an atheist, but she understands the value of religion. Um, I think her uh, assertive and uh, 
didactic tone without excessive mealy mouth qualifications really turns off academics and people who have gone through the whole system because you're very trained by modern liberalism to preface everything that you say with, well, this doesn't, you know, this doesn't stand for all cases and everyone, um, when that should be self-evident. Um, but that, that didactic um, style of speaking is why she's so powerful. Yeah, and it's uh, it's exactly that. Like she shows all sides because she is intent on not denying reality, which is ultimately what I think the post-structuralist and even even the Enlightenment project is trying to do. Like she acknowledges this that there's such a thing as nature, and that whether you think we should transgress the boundaries of nature or we should conform to it, you know that's another story. But it's a real thing. So like whether you think we should, you know, have abortion and gay, uh, not gay marriage, but like that homosexuality should be uh, celebrated. Okay, but this is not a neutral phenomenon. Like there, as you said, there are consequences. And I think like, you know, when you look at the very beginning of sexual persona, she draws up this dichotomy between these enlightenment thinkers of this, I guess this myth of neutrality, like Locke and Rousseau, versus these early libertines like Desaad, like Nietzsche. Because um, yeah, like when you look at Desaad, he's saying like, yeah, like let's totally go against the boundaries of nature. But let's recognize that this is something perverse. Like this is not just like, oh, I'm expressing my feelings and being myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I'm curious to hear more what you think about Desaad and what she says about him and what that has to do with our cultural moment at this point. Uh, well, I read 120 Days of Sodom in ninth grade oh, wow. uh, over two nights, and that irre- irrevocably influenced my psyche and everything that came thereafter. I would uh, read passages of it out loud to my goth friends during science class, and I had found out about Sod. Uh, from Salo, as everyone yeah. does, but especially at that time, uh, as a DVD collector at peak DVD, um, the Salo Criterion DVD, the original was like the rarest DVD, but no one had, uh, it was like $500. Um, and I, at that time, when I got into art cinema and kind of transgressive literature, I was just looking for the most shocking things imaginable. Uh, It all stemmed from uh, this premiere magazine uh, list of like the most shocking movies that I found in seventh grade or the most extreme movies uh, that basically informed me of the existence of like everything that I'm into now. Um, And I have always had an interest in uh, massive works that seem almost impossible to experience in full. This stems from my interest in soap operas, uh, which daytime soap operas played five days a week, um, every day, an hour a day, with a continuing plot line that sometimes, as in the case of Guiding Light, started on radio in the 30s. Um, So this is like almost a century of, of slow, repetitive plot going on. And this is what a lot of people dislike about Saad. Um, you'll hear the common refrain, as you do with basically every author that I like, Ayn Rand included, um, that he's a bad writer, that he's repetitive. 
and didactic and all of this, but I absolutely love his writing style. And I love that Justine and Juliet are linked together as this um, massive uh, mission, operatic mission statement of depravity and evil. I think it's the, the best literary representation of total subversion yeah, this is this is part of a big part of my entire polemic about um, what I call productive boredom. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, people are currently trained um, to think of being bored as a by media as a bad thing always, and mm -hmm. I feel that um, a certain level of boredom is and repetitiveness is like uh, facilitates uh, something entering your brain and your psyche in a different way than something like fast paced and exciting and well plotted, you know, like a, like the whiz bang Martin Scorsese movie or whatever it does. Mm -hmm. um, but people, critics generally tend to see that stuff as a flaw. And this is why people hate sod. Like you never encounter anyone that likes sod. Yeah. Um, they'll kind of go around and uh, they'll watch cello and then they'll dip into it maybe a little in a class um, and they'll see, oh, this is, uh, this is just awful. And then they see all the, the critical stuff about how confirming this, oh yes, sod is so terrible, but they don't actually read the books. No. Um, I just instantly loved the books and i as a representation of total evil beyond imagination especially so early on in the invention of the novel as an art form it seems uh, just unimaginable that something uh, that an art object like this exists um yeah people all hate it they don't give them the time of day you know that that uh review that contemporary review of sexual persona you sent me yeah um claims that sod was very trendy at the time and you know that might be so in academic circles but i've seen the same opinions of sod parroted everywhere for the last 20 years you know yeah i've never seen him in any academic setting not even mentioned let alone be on a syllabus and i mean i think that is a shame because I mean ultimately as Pallia says modern liberalism and then in turn post-structuralism is an intent on pushing this myth of neutrality that sexuality is just this expression of identity the self blah 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 but it's not there isn't this recognition that there are these external forces beyond just my feelings or my personal self-expression that are not neutral like they're situated between darkness evil destructiveness and you know these higher ideals beauty sacrifice um and i don't know like that totally goes against everything that we're being told but then if we're realists if we look at reality we can't deny that part of our sexual desires any of our desires can be very destructive and i think this is what's genius about the saudis like let's go all the way and look at just how dark our humanity can be like it's not all sunshine and rainbows as rousseau would naively like to say so but again like that right. can't be said today We're not allowed to think and i think that the liberals also find sod so off-putting because he says the quiet part out loud about their whole anti-natalist project where yeah. um, all of the sex in Saad, as Polya points out, is explicitly 
anti-natalist, anti-birth, anti-reproduction. This is the whole kind of satanic inversion project that he's doing. And he loves abortion. He loves anal sex. So um, uh, depicting in such stark terms and celebrating um, anti-natalism to this degree um, exposes the kind of underlying violence and filth of what liberals try to paper over as they um, try to dance their way around human biology and uh, pretend in more and more extreme ways that a fetus is not a person um, or that abortion does not kill anyone. Um, that it doesn't have side effects for the woman either. Yeah, yeah. Liberated. Or that uh, gay sex doesn't have side effects or, you know, basically anything. Um, their utopian vision is, you know, everything is medicalized uh, in this very healthful, integrated way. Uh, but Saad shows the reality of everything that they're doing. Yeah, and it's also the cognitive dissonance of, you know, these people who are so um, dead set on this kind of social progress narrative that like, we have to liberate the oppressed, we have to stand up for the underdog, when in reality, this anti-natalist narrative is extremely elitist and disconnected from the realities of the working class, of the oppressed. Like, uh, like people don't seem to see or are determined not to see that there's a elitist kind of band. Oh, yes. Yeah. And Saad is explicitly aristocratic, even with his, you know, leftist revolution sympathies, like everything depicted in the books is aristocratic and everyone uh, below his social class is just a tool, a sexual tool to be used, an animal. Um, what else about Saad? Oh, I also... When I read Justine and Juliet, mm-hmm. um, some of my favorite books are the massive popular 80s uh, epic romance novels like Scruples, Judith Gould's Sins, um, Shirley Conran's Lace um, that are all about uh, the, these like Trumpian narratives of a woman uh, rising from the bottom to uh, to the top of like a magazine empire where she rules everyone and lives in mm-hmm. aristocratic high fashion and it's peppered through with you know uh pornographic sex all the way and i feel like juliet is the precursor of all of these books these decadent trumpian soap opera books um of the 80s uh, i feel like it, it juliet shows the spiritual reality of those books so then what do you think about Pasolini's version of Salo? Oh, it's, a, it's one of my favorite movies ever. It's yeah. just totally um, uh, misunderstood the way that critics try to justify it. Um, like you look at the, the criterion packaging and the extras on this and every single thing is telling you that it's okay to watch this because it's about how Nazis are bad yeah. and fascists are bad. And that's a total uh, lie. <laughs> that is not why someone undertakes a project such as that, uh, the most extreme movie ever made, which you know basically resulted in his death um, very poetically and appropriately. Um, it's sadistic, perverted, artistic, Saudi and pornography. Uh, the way that uh, utopian liberals have to justify 
consumption of transgressive media by saying that it's um, a tool of instruction uh, so that you know that Nazis are bad uh, and you can't forget history. Uh, you know, history will repeat itself if we do yeah. you know, all that garbage. It's just such a lie. It's such a lie. But <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, you really have to reach to pull that out of there. But I mean, I've read what they've done. Of, that's how they've justified yeah. the existence of that movie um, for 40 years. Yeah. And like, I've read a lot of the Marxist readings, but in reality, like, I think it's a strong refutation of Marx. If anything, it's a defense of the sacred of the fact that there is a divine order, natural order to reality. Because if basically, if you banish God, if you banish any sense of the transcendent, then this is what you get. Like you get. Yeah, it's a like, vision of hell. It's a vision of, yeah. of what happens with uh, no spiritual direction. Um, and it's also totally self-indulgent and intentionally erotic, which people have to skirt around. But I remember back in the day when I would read reviews of Salo and it was some liberal critic and they would do the, the kind of Marxist analysis where they're like, oh, the shit feast is making fun of American fast food. Uh, like... Um, you know, decadent Americans and their low quality fast food, this kind of Marxist reading of stuff like that is so unimaginative and so lame. And that's why people hate art cinema because they read things like that, that is just so plainly spiritually inaccurate and has nothing to do with the uh, intense, intense uh, content that you're viewing. Yeah, and I mean, this is the ultimate miscalculation of liberalism, that we can defend the dignity of the person without there being some tie to something transcendent, like goodwill alone, being uh, having good intentions is enough, when in reality, like our good intentions don't stand the chance against their darkness of nature, like you can be nice as much as you want, but at a certain point, like this impulse to use, to um, to instrumentalize the person is gonna come back. We can't fight that off without some kind of higher force intervening. Right, um, and this spiritual wasteland, uh, this kind of hell that's depicted in Salo, everyone, likes to think of themselves as so far off from this but you can see this kind of behavior and these spiritually lost people uh right nearby especially if you're gay especially if you're a young gay man you see other people your age totally surrendering surrendering to godless decadence where they're you know getting barebacked fisted uh doing meth all the time and a lot of guys that I knew, they ended up dead by math or suicide by their early 30s because of that. And the what you see, society is not accepting enough. Oh, yeah, it's it's not their fault. It's, it's society didn't accept uh, gayness enough. It's there's no element of personal responsibility or like the soul or anything. But also in prison, when you mm. like if you go to prison, <laughs> you, you see hell like depicted like this is as low as humans can go. Um, but yeah, the way that Salo is, uh, kept at a distance because the truth of it is too spicy for people 
um, is really funny. And that that Criterion package where it's assuring you, yeah, you can watch this because it's about how Nazis are bad. It's really funny. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, I want to shift over to uh, Huizman and Welbeck. Um, so Pallia mentions Huizman a lot in uh, Sexual Personae, um, but also Welbeck in Submission is basically, I guess he's trying to be a modern version of Against Nature. Um, he references that amongst the other novels, but yeah. So how did you first get into Against Nature? Like where'd you first, how'd you find it? Uh, well, uh, back in early college, one of my gay friends recommended it. And then a few days later repealed his recommendation uh, because he uh, found that the book was actually uh, reactionary and conservative. Um, so that immediately piqued my interest and I read it. I've read it twice at this point. Um, the first time I read it was uh, before my interest in perfumes. So I love the, the obsessive cataloging yes. of all of his different interests. And there's, of course, the whole chapter on perfumes mm -hmm. where he makes himself sick with his uh, little self-constructed perfume organ. Um, but this resonates so deeply with uh, my life and my identity because I surround myself with this esoterica and uh, encyclopedic uh, kind of collections of things that don't really matter. Um, and as the outside world has gotten worse and worse politically and culturally, um, I've retreated to this inner world more and more, much like uh, Des Essentes. Um, the way that it depicts um, all sides of this, such as like, you know, his descent into decadence and isolation uh, just keeps making him sicker and sicker until he's eventually forced to leave his uh, country manor and go back to the city and possibly receive Christian enlightenment. Um, it's so like the message of it is so profoundly different from any other uh, kind of decadent gay literature that I had read up until that point. Yeah, um, I think I think I first found it through Picture of Dorian Gray because it was the yellow book that uh, supposedly perverted Dorian. Mm -hmm. um, and after some research, I figured out what it was. But yeah, I mean, it's um, I also relate to it a lot because of, I guess, the obsession, the, the uh, kind of obsessive tendencies, the I guess we could say Aspergian tendencies that he had to just catalog and categorize all these obscure esoterica. Um, but when you look at the cultural context that his mom was in, it's like, you know, you see how secularism is kind of ravaging French culture at the end of the century and just leaves you with this, um, I don't know, this disillusion, this emptiness, but especially for people who are kind of born with the sensibility that like, this isn't enough, like there has to be something else. Um, it's extremely relatable, I think, today. And I think that's where Welbeck, like he's kind of picking up on the same sentiment that a lot of people are feeling. Um, the I ended up reading the Dertal series, which starts with Laba, where he's like experimenting with Satanism and the Black Mass, and then eventually ends up in a Benedictine monastery and becomes an oblate. And like, 
my hang up is that these kinds of narratives, at least within like contemporary Catholic church kind of culture is not really given much space because I don't know, I think we forget what Pallia reminds us of the pagan decadent tendencies of Catholicism. But again, that it's, it's so beyond this neutral kind of myth that like Dertal is attracted first to Satanism and then eventually makes his way to Catholicism. And like, it's the same kind of thread that Desaad was picking up on. He ended up on the opposite end, of course, but I don't know, like this, uh, this narrative speaks so much to me, but it's not, I just don't see it much in the culture out there besides with people like Pallia, you know? Oh no. I mean, you won't, I mean, in the current barren gray media landscape, you won't see any narrative offering any kind of spiritual perspective yeah. whatsoever you know this in a sentimental I mean, it, sense like at least with, again within religious kind of american christian kind of cultures like you see the sentimental feel-good kind of jesus but it's not the kind of jesus yeah the jesus is just like flesh except everyone you know yeah. the kind of jesus that's just yeah, good person. giving things away and accepting everyone and you know pointing out everyone's hypocrisy yeah. Uh, you might see that, but like, you know, you pull back far beyond media, current media, not representing um, Christian narratives. You can't even represent heterosexual love in current movies uh, in any kind of traditional sense. It's all this highly politicized utopian engineering uh, where women and men must be uh defying stereotypes and be the exact opposite of any kind of uh acknowledged uh gender essentialist reality and uh their romance cannot have any sort of heat to it any kind of uh, natural uh sexual undercurrent like we're in um i say without exaggeration the most uh, puritanical anti-sex uh age that has ever existed yeah. Um, and people, uh, a lot of right-wingers, a lot of conservatives operate under this delusion that we're actually in a hyper-sexualized culture, yeah. um, but it's so compartmentalized and abstract, uh, and the fear of human sexuality is uh, deeper and more laden with uh, crucible witch hunt type sentiments than yeah. has ever been that has ever happened before in history. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's all sterilized. Like even the people who are most libertine, because I don't know, when you look at the word sexuality, it implies that there's this tension, this dynamic, something's happening between these two opposing forces, when in reality, all the sex is sterile. There's no tension. It's all sedated. Um, and I do see anything it, greater. You know? Like, you know, Polly's main thesis that in civiliz times of civil civilizational decline, yeah. uh, transgenderism and sadomasochism will flourish. That's what's happening. I see everything, the uh, woke religion, 2010s liberalism, all of this is tied up as one big uh, operation of sublimated sadomasochistic sexuality and control. And it's mixed up with the religion, the absence of religion and structure in people's lives is obviously why uh, they flock to things like this, which offer uh, a pseudo-religious narrative 
of original sin even because it's all based around the original sin of whiteness yeah um but uh yeah i do see it as this kind of sterile uh medicalized commodified sadomasochistic rerouting of sexuality yeah and i i also pick up on as you said this puritanical strain in the sense that like there's such an obsession with morality without the awareness that we as humans are by nature immoral and sure like we can strive towards moral ideals but it's not we don't bring ourselves there like there has to be some force external to us that makes it possible for us to be moral and no one wants to acknowledge that we are we are sinners we're all screwed up um like if you're if you sin then you have to be eliminated exterminated you have to be canceled like well, the, yeah the thing with liberalism is that their religion offers no path to redemption at all it's entire no. uh like self-circulating like recycled air uh nihilism and punishment so it's much more like the world depicted by sod uh than anything else because yeah the whole the whole operation of canceling people um there is as we've seen over and over again with everyone no path to redemption at all you can never atone enough and you know people who are buying into the system and not rejecting the entire framework of modern liberalism, they think that they can claw their way back into uh, the old world, the old normality and comfort that they once felt. Yeah. But no, this is a specifically specifically designed as an Ouroboros of punishment uh, that never ends. And it's constantly shape-shifting to keep people on their toes so that they don't know what objective reality is. Yeah, and if you actually want to take up the cause of the oppressed, like there's no sense that you yourself have to actually live a life of moral discipline, of sacrifice, of um, of poverty, spiritual poverty. That like to really advocate for people who are suffering and you know marginalized, like per- putting on this kind of performative show, is not actually going to uplift the oppressed. Like there has you have to be implicated in that. Um, like you have to be willing to take up the cross to suffer with them. Mm-hmm. And that's, mm-hmm. I don't know, like the moral obsession just obscures the actual issues that are at hand. Like there are real social injustices, but I rarely see them actually getting addressed in a concrete way. It's all super abstract. Because addressing a real social injustice involves personal risk. And yeah. uh, the whole the structure of modern liberalism is... Is dealing with dated paradigms that cultural paradigms that don't apply to our current situation. Like yeah. everyone still believes uh, we're in this kind of Gen X fantasy of like evangelical Christians having power and um, the leftists being this countercultural force of truth and beauty. And that was a lie, even as it was happening. Evangelical Christians never had power. It's a total lie. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but like it's this false sense of being on the right side of morality that involves no personal risk nothing it's just all about social status and every concession anyone has ever made to 2010s liberalism has been about social status it has not been about um uh, justice or reparations or any kind of moral duty 
um and they know you know <laughs> they know yeah so then what do you make of will beck's incorporation of wismon into submission like do you think I don't know, is it fair to say that he is the kind of heir of uh, Wiesman's legacy? Um, yeah, submission, it feels like it happened a million years ago, even though it was 2015. And uh, this was before Red Scare popularized Wellbeck with e-girls and like internet people. Mm -hmm. And I knew about Welbeck from John Waters, who uh, had always said he was his favorite writer. And ordering submission on release day felt like a really dangerous act at the time, because this was at the height of um, like Islamic terror and uh, the, the liberal obsession with Islamophobia, which has since uh, disappeared and been replaced by Black Lives Matter and transgenderism, all of this other stuff um but at the time it felt really naughty um mm. and what he does there his in addition to the way he explicitly uses Wiesmann for inspiration he's also um imitating uh Jean Raspail's Camp of the Saints mm-hmm. um from the early 70s which was about uh immigrant hordes overtaking france and ending western civilization um and this book in the mid 2010s um was being talked about a lot in hysterical terms uh by liberals because you know the dangerous alt-right was popularizing it like steve bannon Mm uh where and people like that were popularizing this uh old uh, racist french book and submission is obviously imitating that and he um does a clever balancing act where since he um cynically submits to the islamic takeover at the end um you can kind of make your arguments like oh this book isn't actually as racist and problematic as it was made out to be at the time so he kind of gets to have it both ways but if you read all of Wellbeck, you uh, know that it's like the same <laughs> essentially racist <laughs> nationalist formula happening mm-hmm. throughout all of them but you get a little comfort there and you know so maybe he's being ambiguous with submission um i yeah i, I think he's the heir to Wiesmann. i mean i he's the only um like author of literary fiction that i see being talked about with any excitement at all <laughs> these days like the cult he has about him um is really remarkable at a time where uh, literally no one reads yeah no i mean i definitely feel like he the same way that against nature and the digital series resonates with me i felt like Wellbeck did in a you know more contemporary relatable way but i did find interesting the way that he attempted to like recover at first he tries to look at like the Catholic legacy of France and he goes to the monastery. And I found funny when he like, you know, tried to smoke the cigarette in the room, in the retreat room, that they had a, the smoke detector. So that was failed. But, but then, you know, then comes Islam. And it's, it's interesting because the, whoever it was, the prime minister, whoever was taking over the government, like, is talking about these principles from Catholic social teaching, like especially distributist kind of economic model, which 
is sensible is I don't know if it's realistic but you know but then at the same time like I don't know what if there were this kind of moderate version of Sharia law that was imposed in these European countries like the way he made it look didn't sound so bad to me I don't know I mean I know he wasn't going for that but well one of the the funniest things in that book is uh the way that um women submitting to like the nationalized islam just happens in like one sentence there's yeah. a, which <laughs> like you know there's no like feminist battle against it because uh, especially at that time where the liberal dialogue around islam was one of the first kind of red pilling things for me and for many people because you would see the inherent hypocrisy uh and contradictions there where liberal feminists who believed in you know abortion total freedom for women to do anything without moral consequence they were constantly uh and exclusively standing up for you know these uh, the muslims who don't allow women to drive who uh you know do female genital mutilation mm-hmm. um but they it, it didn't disturb them like that hypocrisy didn't disturb them i remember like uh when the charlie hebdo shooting happened uh my like liberal feminist roommate uh was talking about it and she just used this chilling phrase well we shouldn't have stirred the ant pile and that's what something that uh white liberal feminists say about whenever there's like an act of islamic islamic terror is that uh you know the the westerners shouldn't have stirred the ant pile um but everyone uh on both right and left kind of admires islam right now for um depicting a a world where um feminists don't get their way i think i think like conservatives from uh 2014 2015 who had this intense animosity towards islam they eventually found that uh women were the bigger problem (laughs) because women enacted the all the worst excesses of uh late 2010s liberalism they're uh foremost in the the battle for transgenderism and uh unfettered immigration and all of this and now you know women are being demon white women are being demonized and um it's coming to eat them too um it just feels like a totally different cultural moment right now but then everything in 2015 everything was about islam that was when the isis beheading videos would just be like on your feed yeah but like i feel like in both the mainstream left and right like we're totally they're totally evading what is happening in um these kinds of phenomena of islamic radicalism that it's not i don't know at least on the left when they they um construct this as a reaction to islamophobia and intolerance like no like this is a reaction to radical decadent western secularism this is why so many young arab men are drawn to it and sure like terrorism is not a viable solution but they see something very real in islam they see um this radical affirmation of the divinity of god and like this is also what interests me but troubles me about Welbeck is that I think the concept of submission in Islam can be very alluring it is decadent in itself um but within Christianity like the phenomenon of the incarnation that the divine becomes a human suffers like a human it requires this kind of overstepping of this um I don't know these human ways of thinking like it's uh the humility that's required to accept it is 
it throws you off because it's too simple, you know. Um, mm. And I wonder, I don't know, like, I don't know enough about Welbeck as a person, but like you see, at least he sympathizes with the medieval legacy, but doesn't find himself to be able to accept the possibility that this could be real, like that there could be a divine entity that is benevolent, that is, uh, that can shape our culture, that is real. Yeah, he feels like it's LARPing. I, like the, <laughs> you know, the end of submission when he uh, abandons his attempts to be Catholic, that's very predictive of the current kind of Catholic fervor on uh, Twitter that's escalated in the last two years. Right. Um, but yeah, I feel like he just sees it as, as uh, LARPing and um can't fully surrender himself to it can't fully believe it um the shocking and enlightening thing about Welbeck when I first encountered him the first one I read was elementary particles which I still think is the best mm -hmm. um was I had never seen uh the 60s and the counterculture and the sexual revolution depicted negatively yeah. um everything that i had read up to that point uh depicted the 60s as wonderful and you know now um i def i find myself defending the 60s a lot because i feel like people do this overly simplistic kind of uh right-wing trad moralism where they blame everything mm -hmm. in the 60s but i'm actually a very 60s uh kind of person myself and um, everything I do comes from a true 60s hippie uh, kind of libertarian um, psychedelic intellectualism. Yeah. Uh, but with Elementary Particles in like 2010, like the big reveal when you read that book and you're like, oh, this is this is like an acclaimed uh, work of literary fiction. And you find it's actually truly reactionary right wing <laughs> and, and full of like you think there's going to be some big reveal like a lesson learned uh no it's like i had never read anything like that up to that point um depicting his the sexual excesses of his like uh neglectful hippie parents and everything yeah yeah so then before we wrap up what do you think is the path forward like how do we not lose hope in the midst of this kind of chaotic cultural moment um i think people should be normal <laughs> uh i think they should be less online um i think that they should uh read fiction uh i think that they should look to um abandoned and censored and canceled works of the past for clues to the path forward mm -hmm. um uh, before you progress in any other way you must completely reject the framework of modern 2010s democrat liberalism and in this sort of post-left dirtbag left scene uh these people are constantly they 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 experience a little uh animosity and rejection and a little light red pilling for the first time and they're immediately looking for paths back to the comforting arms of the democrat party mm -hmm. and 
ways to still consider themselves one of the good guys, one of the liberals that they've always known that they are. And that's not going to happen until you reject the entire framework, uh, demonstrate some bravery in what you do. Um, anonymity is a plague. And I don't think that real progress can be made with people being ashamed of what they believe in. You have to assume risk. You have to publicly assume risk for what you say and find a way to say it. Um, yeah. I think for straight yeah. people, marriage is the path. <laughs> marriage and having children is the obvious yeah. path forward. Um, since we've had you know, several successive generations of uh, spoiled liberal antinatalist white people who wait until their mid 40s uh, to realize yeah. they want to have children. Uh, so I think getting married and having children is a good thing for straight people. Um, for gays, um, I think that you need to uh, concentrate on reproducing through enlightening art that mm -hmm. uh, does something positive for the world. And there's, since liberals have totally rejected all art and all history in favor of their nihilistic, uh, self-replicating communist death cult, it's all ours now so yeah liberals don't own art <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean for me i feel like the most simple thing to do is like look in the mirror and recognize um especially people who are very caught up with social issues and harp on you know whatever cause du jour like if you can recognize yourself implicated in the problems of the world, like you are a problem, you're screwed up, you're sinful, just like everyone else. I think if we can just accept that fact and like, just begin from there, as you said, we can kind of return to some sense of normalcy because yeah, like there are real issues that need to be addressed. Um, people are suffering, but how do we address that? It's not through a performance, it's accepting the reality of who I am accepting the reality of what it means to be human. And then from there, I think things might be clear. But anyway, so Jack, is there anything you want to plug before we go? Um, so we're on Patreon. Uh, it's patreon.com slash perfume nationalist. Uh, we alternate paywalled and free episodes. There are plenty of free episodes up on uh, Apple and Libsyn and Spotify to dip into, but you don't get the full story as intended from start to finish unless you subscribe to the Patreon. Um, I'll also, by sheer coincidence, uh, next week we're on my show, we're gonna be talking about um, Camp of the Saints submission and the Sally Field movie, Not Without My Daughter. Awesome. Um, and then in March, um, I will be uh, teaching a class for Renegade University on Welbeck. Cool. So. Awesome. A lot going on in the Welbeck world. Yes. And the new one is, the new book is, the English translation is coming out in May, I think. That's what I heard. Nice. Yeah. So, well, Jack, thanks for coming on. This was fun. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Awesome.